There's a tendency among many Christians to avoid the city, to bypass it or avoid it because it seems scary, because it seems unsafe, because it's challenging to dive in and wrestle with the realities of our city. But Jesus didn't call his disciples to hold their breath until they escaped this broken world. Rather, he called us to go into the world and bring his kingdom to bear here and now. That's what Jesus did. He entered culture, he entered the city. He rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty with the issues that surrounded him. Why? Because he cared, because he had compassion for those around him, because he wasn't content with the broken world. This means we will not retreat from our city. We won't avoid the hard issues. We won't bypass the mess. We'll roll up our sleeves and do our best to be the hands and feet of Jesus here and now and make an eternal impact in our city. This means we must do five things. We will be a church that reaches the next generation of college students God is bringing to our city. We will be a church that reflects the diverse ethnicities represented in our city. We will be a church that serves children suffering from broken situations. We will be a church that serves those impacted by poverty and addiction. We will be a church that sees the gospel multiplied through planting new churches, not just locally and domestically, but internationally through all cities. Jesus is making all things new. He's inviting us into his plan. It's time for the church to rise up and make a difference. It's time to jump in and give it all we've got. It's time to be for the city. Good to see you. If you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and open it to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in the middle of the Old Testament. It's right after Psalms and Proverbs, a couple other books, and then Isaiah, and then Jeremiah. We're going to be in Jeremiah 29 for um, our text this morning, so go ahead and find your way there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's, that's okay. We'll put the verses um, on the screens for you. But man, I am excited to, to be back, to be with you, and to jump into a new series that's called For the City. And as you are probably aware, we are a church that exists for Christ, for community, and for the city. And we believed it so much, we got the biggest font we could find and painted it onto the walls because that's what we want to be uh, about. And so we're actually going to be diving into a series uh, called For the City. But before I dive in, why don't we pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Join me as I pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Man, thank you for the way that you are stirring and working in each of us. Thank you for bringing us here today. Lord, we bow before you and just ask uh, for you to do your work, whatever your agenda and your plan would be for today, that you would do that. I pray for every person that's here this morning. God, I pray for a heart that's open. I pray for hands that are open. I pray for eyes that are spiritually open to what you would have for each of us today, because I believe that if we obey and if we listen, you're going to do great things through each of us. So God, we ask this in Jesus' good name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Well, 2017 has been um, quite, a, quite a fun year, exciting year, interesting year uh, for our church. If you were to ask me, Ethan, what is one word? What is one word, how you would sum up 2017? Uh, several words come to mind. But I think the one word that I would use to describe 2017 for our church, the Bridge Church, is the word clarity. Everybody say clarity. 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 Half of you didn't say it. It means you disobeyed, all right? Everybody say clarity. clarity. 
Clarity, all right? Clarity, and what, what I mean is we are still a fairly new church. Um, got a couple years under our belt. Our three-year anniversary is coming up in a few weeks in September. And so in many ways, we are still kind of a baby-toddler church, which means we've been running around making a mess all over the place. And I feel like this year, um, God has really just done uh, some great things in and through our leadership, our elders. We've literally spent months and months and months um, praying and asking and articulating what it looks like for our church to really be for uh, the city. And so literally, uh, the culmination of this entire season is culminating through this five-part series that we're calling For the City, in which we are trying to, we believe that we've called as a church in five specific areas to be for the city. And so those are five. Today is going to be next generation. We're going to be talking about that one. And then next week will be multi-ethnic church and then underprivileged youth, persons of need, and church planting. And we will culminate the series on the fifth Sunday church planting on our three-year anniversary in September. It is going to be a lot of fun. And so we're walking through over the next few weeks what it looks like for our church to be for the city. And what I'm hoping happens through this series I'm praying and I'm asking for God to unite our church, unity, to unite our church around a specific vision for the city so that we can move forward with arms locked to see our city change. Does anybody want to be a part of that? Amen. I do. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to spend the bulk of my sermon, walking through what I think is the pinnacle text in the entire Bible for what it means for God's people to be for the city, and then I'm going to spend the last part of my sermon walking through specific vision that we have to be a church for the next generation. And just by the way, our creative team did a bang-up job on our For the City uh, brand for this. Um, love it, love it, and... Um, there is a rumor, uh, I hear a rumor that t-shirts may be forthcoming in a few weeks, so we'll see, we'll see about that. Jeremiah 29, verse 1, this is, this is what it says, this is how we'll start. Jeremiah says this, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, everybody say exile, exile, and to the priest, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, which is a weird name had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let me catch you up to speed a little bit on the historical context, context here. And I know that every single one of you this morning was waiting for the portion of the sermon where we would do historical context. All right. So about six centuries before the time of Christ, God's people who resided in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas in God's country, Israel, uh, God's people were taken captive by a foreign king, the king of Babylon, named Nebuchadnezzar. And at this point, a few centuries before the time of Christ, King Nebuchadnezzar is the world leader. He rules and he reigns, and Babylon is at the very height of its rule and reign. Babylon reigns over all other countries in the world, and King Nebuchadnezzar actually comes and invades God's people, invades their land, and literally takes people back to Babylon as exiles and slaves. Uh, there's a book in the Old Testament named Daniel. This is actually the same context as the book of Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And King Nebuchadnezzar made several trips to Jerusalem in each way, taking back captives to Babylon. So God's people at this juncture are exiles in a foreign land. 
They're foreigners in a hostile land. They've been oppressed. They are outsiders. They have been forced to live in the margins of society. Now, when we read this story, um, God is giving us a picture of an even greater story that exists throughout the entire canon of Scripture. God is weaving a theme throughout this story that is also a story that exists about God's people for all times, and that is that we are exiles. I'll, I'll say it this way. Every Christian is an exile. Every Christian is an exile. Where do you get that, Ethan? Well, multiple places. I'll, I'll mention one for you. First Peter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. What is Peter trying to get us to understand from this? What is God trying to get us to understand from this theme and this story throughout Scripture? It is this, that we are all sojourners and exiles, which means this world is not our home. And I'll just say that one more time so that everybody gets it. This world is not our home. What that means is that God expects us to see ourselves quite literally as refugees while we are here on earth, which means our lives are temporarily located outside our home country. Now, this immediately makes me think of, and I see several of you that have made the trip to Haiti. My wife and I have had the privilege over the last couple summers to be with a team from the Bridge Church to go on a mission trip to Haiti. Now, I love Haiti. It is a wonderful country. It's absolutely amazing. It's one of the most impoverished countries in the Western Hemisphere, and there's a lot of work to be done there, and we've partnered with a great organization that's doing awesome things there. But when I am in Haiti, it is no shock to anyone there that I am an outsider. <laughs> they don't have to look very long, and they recognize that I do not belong there for a number of different reasons. I don't look the same. I don't talk the same, I don't act the same, and I don't eat the same. As in, they have their own language, their own customs, their own government, their own, their own everything, really. And when I am there, it is absolutely clear that I am an outsider, I am a foreigner. I am there, I am there, I'm, I'm there for several days, but it is pretty clear that I am a foreigner, an outsider in that country. Do you know that that is the same concept, that's the same idea that we should use to see ourselves here and now where we live in this land? Every single one of us, if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, this world is not your home. You are in exile here where you live. Our future home is heaven. This is not our home which means we are on this earth for a brief window of time. And in light of eternity, this literally is just a blip on the radar. And Jesus could have taken you straight to glory when you became a Christian, but he's got a purpose for you here. And in light of eternity, you have a small sliver of time, a tiny window of opportunity to make a difference in the world. Now, I'll just give you a complete honest confession this morning. 
I spend way too much time trying to make this world my home. I invest much of my dollars, much of my time, much of my energy, much of my passions trying to make this world my home. Now, the great thing about America is the comfort and the luxuries that we get to have as citizens of this country. Definitely not a perfect country, but there are some significant perks that we get to enjoy that most people don't get to enjoy. It's a great thing. You know what? It's also a curse. It's a curse because it lulls us to sleep thinking that this is our home and this is where we should get comfortable and this is where we should set up shop for the rest of our lives, not recognizing that this is just a one stop onto our final destination of heaven. This is just a stop. And if I were to venture, I would probably say that many of you as well follow, fall into the same category where you spend most of your effort, energy, and time trying to make this world feel like your home. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy a boat. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy a house. But what are our motives of trying, as we go through this life, trying to have careers, trying to have families, trying to have homes, trying to have real estate, are we trying to make this world our home? And God expects each of us to recognize that this is not our home. We are exiles. And so if we are exiles and sojourners in this world, how should we operate and interact with the city and the culture in which we find ourselves? This is a century-long debate for hundreds of years where Christians have tried to answer the question, how should we involve and interact ourselves with culture? There's two approaches, I would say, two primary approaches that are really extremes on two ends of the spectrum of how we should uh, involve ourselves in culture. Here's, Here's the first one. The first is assimilation. This is actually the tactic of King Nebuchadnezzar. Whenever he would overtake an unruly nation, instead of expelling them and enslaving them, he would rather bring them to Babylon and try to assimilate them into his own culture. He he would actually change their names. He would change their education. He would change their customs. He would change their religion and and more, which means if you wanted a job, if you wanted to make money, if you wanted to get power, the only way that you could become culturally, spiritually, intellectually, and socially uh, successful is if you integrated into the Babylonians or rather assimilated into the Babylonians. And what happens through assimilation is God's people begin to lose their ability to have their own distinct understanding an interpretation of the world, and within a couple generations, they are gone. See, when it comes to Christian engagement with the city, assimilation is the idea that we should just fit in right with the world, that we should lose our distinctiveness in order to adapt to the culture. But assimilation is ultimately getting in bed with the world. It's losing our distinct Christian identity as the people of God. That's assimilation. Now, on the other side of the continuum, on the other side of the spectrum, the other extreme is what I'll call alienation. Alienation is actually the approach that God's people were trying to use in this section of Scripture where Jeremiah is writing to them. There were numerous false teachers and, and false prophets who were encouraging God's people to alienate themselves from Babylon because they weren't going to be there for very long. They were encouraged to despise the wicked city, to disdain the city, to stay on the outside and and not engage. 
But because of this false teaching, the people literally made very little effort to integrate into Babylon. And they remained on the fringes of society because they believed that they were just going to be there for a short season and decided that they would completely disengage themselves from the city. Now, this is actually, just as assimilation is, alienation is still a very common approach of many Christians and churches. There's no concern, no concern about engaging or impacting the city at large because we'd rather just create our own little tribe separate from the city. We'd rather create our own little enclaves at arm's length from the wickedness and the evil nature of the city. We don't want to stain ourselves of the world, and so we retreat and we come back, stay away, and just hold on until Jesus raptures us from this evil, wicked place. But neither assimilation or alienation is God's answer to the question about how we should engage with the city and culture. So how does God instruct his people to engage in a hostile foreign city? This is what he says in verse 5. It says this, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now this is absolutely shocking for God's people to hear something like this. I mean, this would have been astounding to hear something like this actually come out of God's mouth that we are supposed to seek the good of the city. This, this is absolutely shocking. Up until this point in their, um, I guess, in the history of God's people, most of the Israelites, most of God's people thought of the city as an evil, wicked place that we should completely abhor and stay away from as fast as possible because God's going to destroy it and it's just a completely wicked city. But God says in, in this section that you're supposed to seek the welfare of the city. Now, this word welfare in Hebrew is actually the Hebrew word shalom. Everybody say shalom. Shalom. It's an incredibly rich Hebrew word. We don't even have an equivalent in English, and so the best word that we can come up with is usually peace or welfare. But when most of us use the word peace, we think of peace as the absence of hostility, it's just getting along with one another. But the word shalom in Hebrew is a very rich word that means completeness, it means fullness, it means wholeness. It's a word that's used even as far back as in the Garden of Eden when God describes human flourishing in the way that the world was supposed to operate in the very first place. It's shalom. And God instructs his people to seek the shalom of the city. Jewish people, even to this day, still greet one another with the phrase shalom halakim, which means peace be to you. And God is instructing his people to seek the shalom of the city, to actually engage with the city, to love it, to prosper it, to seek the good of the city, to build homes, to start families, to start careers, and to dive into the city to ultimately be the change the city needs. This is not assimilation and this is not alienation. This is what I would call biblical integration. This is integration. This, this is taking two things that are unlike 
and putting them together. It's taking two things that are unique and distinct and then inhabiting the same space. Here's what that means. Christians are called to enter the world and to integrate into the city to help the kingdom of God come to bear in the context where he places you. That's what he expects of us. It's being light in darkness. Just, just out of curiosity, in order for light to shine, what must be present? Darkness. Darkness. If there is no darkness, then light is light. It really isn't very uh, distinct. It isn't very unique. If you take a bunch of light and put it together, it just seems like all light. A light is most bright whenever it is in the middle of darkness. You could say a, a light shines the brightest when it is surrounded by darkness. And being a Christian means entering the city, to love the city, to let your light shine in darkness. Now, in order to really understand this idea about city, we have to recognize the way that God thinks about a city. Now, I think most of us probably come in here today with the idea that a, a city is, is pretty bad. There's problems, it's, there's brokenness, it's bad parking, you got to pay for parking, it is tight, it is congested, there are buildings, there are a lot of concrete, there aren't many trees, there's not many fresh air, there's a lot of craziness. We've, most of us probably have the idea that a city is kind of a bad thing. But when we look throughout the entire Bible, we see that the word city is actually found a thousand times in the Bible, over a thousand times in the Bible. And St. Augustine, the fifth century early church father, when he read the Bible, he would say that the world is typically a, a tale, it's a saga, it's a narrative of two cities. He wrote in his book, The City of God, saying that the whole world could be summed up as the saga of two cities. The city of man and the city of God. What, what, is, what does he mean by that? Well, the city of man, it's what Isaiah calls the lofty city. The city of man, it's characterized by pride. It operates on the basis of human pride. People go into the human city to make a name for themselves, to get recognition, to get a self, to find power and achievement. It's the basis for the earthly city. In the city of man, it produces exhaustion. Because people are working so hard to prove themselves. They go into the city needing to get, needing to get money, needing to get power, needing to get recognition, needing to get a resume, needing to get a GPA, needing to get love, needing to get whatever they think they need to find power and success. And the city of man is also a place of oppression. We step on others in order to make it up the ladder Climb on other people in order to make sure that ourselves, we get ahead over other people. It's an inverted city. Rather than love people and use money, we love money and use people in order to get it and to get power and pride and success. The city of God, Augustine says, the city of God is completely countercultural to the city of man. The city of God operates on the principle of pride. I'm uh, sorry, not on pride. It operates on the principle of peace. Not on the basis of human effort and human striving, but on God's grace. And the city of God doesn't produce exhaustion, it actually produces joy. Because the people in the city of God have God's grace, which means they know who they are. You don't come into the city of God looking to get, but looking to give. You already know who you are by God's grace. You're already loved, You're already, you already have a self. And the city of God doesn't produce oppression, it produces joy. 
Because you don't need to feel good about yourself by feeling superior to others. It's a city that's described by joy and justice. Now, up until this point, God's people had a woefully inadequate view of the city and described it as something that would be evil and wicked. And they would dream about a future city of God that would come one day and they would get to be a part of that city. But Jeremiah comes and says, seek the city of God now. Enter the city and live as citizens in the city and demonstrate the city of God to the city of man. Jesus explains it a little clearer in Matthew chapter 5. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount, his inaugural sermon, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. See what Jesus uses, the word that he uses to describe the Christian community that he uses to describe the church? He says we are a city on a hill. We're we're a city on a hill, which means we let our light shine before other men, other people, and let our good deeds uh, be made known so that other people will praise our Father in heaven. Here's what Jesus is trying to say. The city of God is now. It's now. It's not just a future reality, it's a present reality. And when you become a Christian, you enter the city of God. And here's what that means if you were a follower of Jesus here today. If you're a follower of Jesus, that means you have dual citizenship. Dual citizenship, so it means you are a citizen of this world. You are a citizen of this city. You are a citizen of this country. But that is not your primary citizenship. Your primary citizenship is that you're a citizen of the city of God. That you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the very best citizens of the city of man are those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells us the way that you bear witness to the city of God is that you go into the city of man and you don't work in the city for your own good, but for the good of the city. Which means when you show up to serve at your job, when you show up to cook in the kitchen, When you show up as a teacher, when you show up as a politician, when you show up as a business leader, when you're going through your life, when you're living your life, you're doing it for the good of the city, not for your own good. And we even see at the end of Scripture, in the last two chapters of the Bible, guess how John describes for us what heaven is like? It's a city. Now, I think most of us think about heaven as like we're dreaming about that place one day, where there are just meadows and meadows and endless fields that we walk and flowers and grass and maybe up on a hill we have our own little mansion that's there and we get to enjoy heaven all by ourselves with a lot of real estate and we kind of have our own track of land and we are, that's not how John describes heaven. He says heaven is the new city, the holy city Jerusalem that comes down to earth. In Revelation chapter 21, John uses the word city 10 times to describe heaven. Now, some of you are like, well, I'm not really looking forward to uh, heaven anymore. Um, <laughs> since I don't, mean, I don't have my boat and I don't have a field and all those. Oh, you might have a boat in heaven. I'm sure there's grass. I'm sure there are fields. I'm sure that we will do fun things like, like that. But heaven is a place that is marked by density and diversity means millions upon millions of of Christians inhabiting the city 
of God, living in the city of God, which is unlike any other city in the the world in our day. It's a city that's marked by joy. It's a city that's marked by love and justice for one another. It's a wonderful city. It's a a beautiful city. It's It's a great city. And when we recognize that God has called us to be for the city and to live in the city and bring his kingdom to the city, it changes fundamentally how we operate in this world. It changes fundamentally the way that we look at our job. It changes the way that we look at our education, the way that we look at our GPA, the way that we go through our lives. It changes it completely. One of the most impressive things I've ever read about the Christian community comes from a guy named Rodney Stark, who is a historian. He wrote wrote the book, The Rise of Christianity, which describes the first couple centuries after the time of Christ when Christians were living in the Roman Empire. And in the first couple centuries, they didn't have near the medical advancement that we have today. And plagues would come through and wreak havoc on the cities in the Roman Empire. It was absolutely crazy. I mean, it was devastating. In his book, he actually articulates from eyewitness descriptions, literally from back during that time period. And this is, this is what he says. It's, it's incredible. The doctors were quite incapable of treating the diseases. People became afraid to visit anyone. As a result, thousands of people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other, and half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets. The catastrophe was so overwhelming. People became indifferent to every rule of morality. Many pushed sufferers away, even their own dearest, often throwing them into the streets before they were dead, hoping to avert contagion. Absolutely devastating. Now, here's what he says about the Christians who lived during this time. It's unbelievable. He says this, most Christians during the plagues showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many of these Christians departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors with diseases and they cheerfully accepted their pains. They lost their lives in this manner and many elders and ministers did as well. Now, Rodney Stark, this historian and sociologist, he's trying to figure out why in the world would Christians do this? In their day, there were numerous religions, numerous perspectives, many competing philosophies during this time in the Roman Empire, but among all of them, only Christianity operated like this. And Stark says that when the cities were falling apart, Christians actually stayed there. Rather than flee the cities and run away from the diseases, they stayed there and took care of people, even at the cost of their own lives. And Stark points out that if someone is in a a, a bad place physically and has a disease or an illness, if someone is sick, even if you just give them a blanket or food and water, they're five times more likely to survive. And so most of the people who survived the plagues only survived because Christians took care of both themselves and non-Christians. And these early Christians were so confusing to their culture. Like, it just didn't make sense. Why in the world would these crazy group of people, these Christians who believed in a Galilean peasant who died and rose from the grave, why in the world would they operate like this? 
They were absolutely confusing to their culture. Their culture just couldn't figure it out. And the early Christians, they would respond and they would say, well, we're not here for anything. And we're not afraid of death. We don't need to be rich. We don't need to get ahead. We don't even need to live. We are here for you. We're here for the peace of the city. We're here for others. And as a result, the Christian gospel captured the imagination of the cities in the Roman Empire. And historians tell us that by AD 300, most of the cities in the empire had become Christian, even though the countryside was still pagan. And Christianity took fire and captured the imagination of the empire, not by trying to take over, not by trying to take power, not by trying to elect their own people into office. They got power by not trying to get power. They got influence through absolute service. And the mark of the citizens of the city of God is they're the very best citizens of the earthly city. Kenneth Lottoretti says this, he's a professor at Yale, he says this about this time period, never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige. It's amazing. Turned an entire empire upside down. Now here's... Here's the million dollar question. Where in the world did these crazy Christians get the motivation to live like this? Where in the world did these crazy Christians get the power to be able to operate like this? Where did it come from? I'll tell you. At the center of Christianity is a man named Jesus Christ. We say at the bridge, It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And everything we do is in response to the way Jesus lived. And these early Christians recognized that. They actually believed that. See, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He entered human history. He he came to the city of man. And rather than destroy the city of man, He lets the city of man destroy Him. He loved the city to the degree that he sacrificed everything for the good of the city. He laid down his life for it because it was only through his sacrifice that the city would actually be able to experience peace. And John tells us this in 1 John 3, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If I had a sign up sheet today on the way out, And I said, hey, this is our sign-up sheet for giving up your life for someone else, all right? And as everyone is here today, we're so thankful that you decided to join us and to be with us here at the bridge. And the the main action step that we're going to do out of the sermon is we've got a sign-up sheet at the back door. And please put your name down if you're willing to give up your life for the sake of one of your brothers in Christ. We get like three names. (laughs) I don't want to do that. I I, I don't want to do that. I, kind of, I like my life. I like this world. I like my home. I like my family. I don't like the idea of giving up my life for other people. But when we look at the gospel, we look at what Jesus has done. Jesus has came and he gave up his life for you, which means if you're a Christian, the only reason that you have any life at all is because Jesus gave up his life for you. We say it this way at the bridge. 
Jesus lived the life that you could not live, which means he lived the life of perfection, completely upholding the moral code and the moral law of God. He lived the life that you couldn't live. But he died the death that you deserve to die, which means he substituted him place and he took the cross that had your name on it, which means he took on your sin and your shame onto himself and sacrificed himself in order to cover, to atone for that and he not only lived the, life, lived the life that you couldn't live and died the death that you should have died, but he conquered the grave that you could not conquer, which means he went into the grave. He went into the death that was designed for you, but he rose from it victorious, conquering Satan, sin, hell, and the grave so that you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, will one day rise again and have life in him. Can I get a witness in here? Amen. Amen. That's the gospel. It's the, it's the good news of the, the gospel. And here, here's... Here's the tragedy for, for each of us. One of the wonderful things about where we live, one of the wonderful things about the country in which we live in, though it has significant issues, I don't even have to dive into that, but we live in a country, unlike many countries in the world, that provides us with a lot of comforts and luxuries, which means you can be a Christian, you can name Christ, you can even act like a Christian and go through this life very comfortably and very luxurious. See, that's the curse that we find ourselves. There are Christians today that will be located in the Middle East that will have a gun pointed at their face and will be asked to recant the name of Christ. And if they do not, they will shoot them and kill them on spot. You and I don't have to face that kind of reality. You and I don't have to face that kind of scrutiny. We can be... We can be a Christian and just completely assimilate into the culture where we are, not make a difference at all, or we can completely alienate ourselves if we want to and keep arms length and just go through our own life and wait till we get to heaven one day. See, living in, a, in America, it's incredibly comfortable, but it's also a curse. It's a curse because Christians don't actually have to demonstrate their distinctiveness of what Jesus has called us to do and to take the gospel seriously. See, Jesus was the ultimate exile. And he demonstrates for us how we are to live as exiles in this current world. And because we are citizens of the city of God, that allows us to be the very best citizens of the city of man. And rather than plunder the city and take advantage of it, we love the city and seek its good. I'll say it this way. The gospel is the only way that you'll be a good citizen of the city. The gospel, it's the only way that you'll actually be a good citizen of the city. The gospel is the only thing that frees you from yourself. Apart from the gospel, we use the city for, uh, for the good of ourselves. But in Christ, we get the power to use ourselves for the good of the city. It's only through the gospel that we're able to live this way. Now, here's a, here's a question for you. We have the option of assimilation on one side, then we have the option of alienation on the other side. Which extreme do you find yourself falling into? Every single one of us in the room today has a tendency to fall or bent towards one direction or the other. Where, in your, where does your heart lead you? Are you a person that just wants to try to lose your distinctiveness and assimilate into culture and not really make a difference for the gospel? Or are you someone that finds yourself alienating away from culture, separating yourselves from the wicked world that you find ourselves? Here's another hard question for you. What are the plagues in our city what are the diseases, metaphorically, what are the plagues that we aren't willing to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty in? Because the early Christians were relentless. 
about loving the city. And wherever there was a need, wherever there was brokenness, they wouldn't run from it, they would run to it. Do you find yourself running to the city or do you find yourself running away from the city? See, church, we have to be a church that isn't content with just going through our own lives and being comfortable and complacent for our lives. We have to be a church that has a focus on being for the city. We're here for the good of the city. As I mentioned earlier, there are five components that we believe, five things specifically right now. These could change perhaps in the future as our city changes. For instance, if we lived in Montana, um, thank God we don't live in Montana, but if we lived in Montana, there would be a, a different, it's a different context that we would operate as the church. We live in Wilmington. What does it look like for us to be the church here in Wilmington? Our elders have asked this question. We believe right now it means five things specifically. I mentioned those earlier. The first one is next generation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention this one as, as, as we wrap it up. Next generation. I love this verse, Psalm 78. It says this about the next generation. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord. I just love that phrase right there. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power, about his mighty wonders, so the next generation might know him. How many of you want to be a part of something like that? How many of you want to be a part of making a difference in the next generation? The unfortunate thing about most churches in our culture is they don't give a flip about the next generation. And we will be a church that gets over, and one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really old, and so I'm going to have to remember this sermon a few years down the road. But we have to be a church that gets over our own personal preferences and does everything that we can to make sure that we're reaching the next generation for Christ. And any church that stops reaching the next generation will die. Will die. We want to be a church that reaches the next generation because of where God has sent us and because where he has strategically placed us. We live in a university town. We live in a city that is filled with college students at least about nine or ten months out of the year. Upwards of 16,000 college students at UNCW, as well as 30,000 students at Cape Fear Community College at its various campuses. Here's what that means. I did the math on this, even though I'm a reading guy. Did the math on this. About every 10 years, 100,000 college students will cycle through our city. Every decade, 100,000 college students will call Wilmington home for a few short years. And we believe that we have a prime opportunity to impact college students. Here's how we say it. This is our vision for college students. We will be a church that reaches college students and raises them up to be members of a church and sends them to be missionaries in their city. Three things there, reach. Reach means we want to reach students with the gospel. We want college students to understand who Jesus is. We want college students, though they were coming to Wilmington for all sorts of different purposes, we want to backdoor them as much as possible with the gospel and let them see the gospel and who Jesus is and what he has done so that they can change their, he can change their, their life. We're praying for a pretty audacious goal. We're asking God to let the Bridge Church in the next few decades to baptize a thousand college students for him. A thousand college students. We want to reach college students for him and then we want to raise them up to be members of a church. And here's, here's just a little a side note about so college students, those of you who, who, who are here. Um, if anyone hasn't told you yet, you are an adult, all right? Just a little bit of, little bit of wisdom from Uncle Ethan this morning, all right? You, you are an adult, which, which means we're going, to, we're going to treat you like adults. Uh, now, granted, you are in your own certain little um, season of life with its own challenges and its own complexities. I get that. Pet peeve real quick. 
Um, when you have three children, then you can tell me you're busy, okay? And if, until, until you get there, you, you're not busy. But I recognize, I'm kidding, I recognize that you have your own challenges and your own complexities about where you are, but you have an opportunity, you have a window of time that God has called you to be a part of his plan. When you are in college, you don't get to do like plan B, God's plan for you is plan A, to be a part of his mission and what he is doing. And God uses the church for what he is doing. We are the people of God, which means we want to raise you up to be members, which we expect you to be covenant members here. You're like, I'm a freshman. What did he just say? Did he say something about covenant? That sounds very daunting. It is. It is. It is daunting. It, it just means being committed to, to a church. And you don't have to be committed to the bridge church. You can be committed to any church uh, as, far, as far as I'm concerned, but be committed to a church. Like, and it's a beautiful thing. The church is a family. Like, and we have this tendency, we fall into this idea of dating the church. And I'll be like, I like, I like this about this church, and I'm going to go here on this Sunday, and then I'm going to go here on this. That's dating the church. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The church is designed to be a community of Christ followers. If you are a believer, you should belong. And it's a beautiful thing when you belong to a church. We have, we have juniors and seniors, college students in our church who are amazing. They are amazing, and they are in our community groups. They are covenant members. They, they are like, when I was a college student, you guys are knocking it out of the park from wherever I was when I was a college student. Like, we, we want to care for you. We want to love you. We want to support you. So we're trying to raise you up to be college students. I'm sorry, raise you up to be members uh, in a church. And I'll just say this as well. We partner with several different campus ministries um, in, in the city, specifically at UNCW. I believe it's like four. We were talking through it this, this week. Like we love campus ministries. Several campus ministry leaders are actually covenant members at our church, praise God. And we, we believe that there is a specific role and need for campus ministries. And every campus ministry that I've talked to sees part of their primary role as connecting college students to the church. Why? Because the church is God's plan A for the world. It's how God is going to change this City. So we want to reach college students, we want to raise them up to be members, and then we also want to send them to be missionaries. We want to send you to your campus to help your roommates, and there's coming a day where you'll probably hate them, but help your roommates experience the gospel, your, your classmates, your, your teammates, wherever God puts you on campus to be missionaries, to see this as an opportunity, this is a window of time, and to be missionaries in our city. And so we're praying for God to give us 15 college student leaders, 15 student leaders that will be plugged in as covenant members and that will be plugged into community groups and will be primarily representatives at a community group and help college students get connected to the church. Here's a picture of um, the first four college student leaders um, and Danella, who is a second from the left. And these are our first four student leaders at the Bridge Church, and they're starting this semester to do this. And so we, 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 we love you as college students, and we want to partner with you. We want to help you. We want to support you in this season. And I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll, cl I'll close with this um, story that I was thinking about this week that really, um, really affected me this week as I was thinking about you who are college students. There was a guy back in the 18th century by the name of John Wesley. How many people in the room have heard of John Wesley before? Quite, quite a few of you. John Wesley was a college student who had become a Christian, and God had completely changed his life, and he entered in college 
thinking through the lens of how can I utilize, how can I leverage this season of time in my life to make a difference for the gospel? It's an amazing story. So John, he, he, he gathered a few of his friends before there were any kind of campus ministries, before that even existed. John grabbed a few of his close college student friends. Some of them became Christians and they would get together on a weekly basis and they would pray together. They'd pray together and they would read scripture together and they would talk about their lives. They would talk about their situations. His brother Charles Wesley would come into the group and would be a part of the group. Another man by the name of George Whitfield would come and be a part of that group as well. And get this. John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield would go on to lead one of the greatest revivals that the history of the world has ever seen. And through John Wesley would be started the Wesleyan movement or the Methodism movement in which the Methodist church gets its roots from today. And guess how many people are a part of the Methodist church worldwide today? 81 million people. Why? Because of one college student. Because of one college student who decided he would take the gospel seriously and do whatever God called them to do to make a difference where he had put them. It's amazing. College students, God can use you. God will use you in this season. Do you believe that? Amen. Here's what I want to do. This is how I'm going to close. If you're a college student here today, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable for just a minute. If you're a college student, I want you to stand where you are. I want to be able to pray over you as you start this new year. Mm. Mm. Amen. Here's, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know, college students. We love you, all right? We legitimately uh, love you. We care about you. We're glad that you are here. We're glad that God has sent you to this city for this season. We love you. We want to support you and help you however we can. And we want you to commit. Commit to a church. It doesn't have to be the Bridge Church, but commit to a church. Lock arms with believers. And what if you spent four years of your college uh, a season walking with other believers through this season? It'd be amazing what God would do in your life. And I want you to believe that you are the future. You're the future. You're the future. God's church in the future will be determined by you. Determined by you. So let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for these students and thank you for bringing them to Wilmington. You could have sent them to any other city in, in the world practically, but you brought them to Wilmington. And I thank you for them. God, I, I just believe that this is a divine moment and opportunity that you have them here. And God, I pray for favor, I pray for blessing, I pray for prosperity, I pray for you to do an amazing thing in and through their lives, and I pray that you would change our city, I pray that you would change our campuses through it. So we ask this in Jesus' good name, amen. Can we give him a hand one more time? Amen. God will be seated. Amen. Amen. We love you college students, we're glad that you're here.